We're going to talk about something this morning that has been made legalistic and tragically should never have been. And as a matter of fact, I I was sharing with Barb after the first service that I felt like for about the first half of this study that I was just slogging my way through it. Just trying to get past the junk. Because there's a lot that's built up around this. And what we seek and what we desire at the bridge and when we approach the Word of God is just the simplicity and the truth of the Word. Just to to live the way God has called us to live, to do it the way He said to do it, to trust Him as He called us to trust Him. But we're going to have to move through some stuff this morning that, that is doctrinal. But it's important that we do so. I, I feel kind of like I did when I was a kid. and I, I know I've told this story in here before, but I was running through, uh, what was it, Nigel Park? Is that the park there in Mishmio? Running through Nigel Park, fields of green as far as the eye could see. And I'm just hauling, very impressed with my own speed. <laughs> Until all of a sudden I began to realize that the grass was getting slick. And I looked down and I was hauling through this thick, dense, black mud. And I had on my really cool, kind of tie-dye white 70s pants. My white hang tin shirt with two little golden feet on it. This was not a good day for the mud. And as I was running, I just completely lost my balance and went blam and covered head to toe in this thick black mud. And then I got up and to get out of it, and you, you've probably had this experience before. Maybe you're out on the beach and, and you're wearing some shoes and you, you start to walk in the sand and you think it looks pretty solid, but then you get into a place where your foot sinks like a half a foot. And you, you can hardly pull it out. And that's, that really was what it felt like to me this morning. Just, just slogging through the mud to, to clear it away so we can just see what the scriptures had to say. And we do that every Sunday. We just kind of open it up and see what the scriptures have to say. But, but what we're going to talk about is something that carries a lot of, of doctrinal tradition. Depending on what church you were raised in, depending on where you came from, you have, I guarantee you, a very definite perspective on what we're going to talk about. The question is, hard though it may be to ask, is... Is that perspective biblical? Or is it just what I was taught? Is it of the Word of God or is it just the way that I was raised? We're going to try as much as possible to avoid legalism. And yet, and yet, God does give us very simple, very clear, very profound truths that I believe He wants us to adhere to if we're going to do it His way as opposed to our way. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. It's the first time we see Jesus now emerge as an adult in our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We just began it last week. We saw the the story of the birth of Jesus and the wonder of that. We're actually going to come back to that in about three months around Christmas time and spend a little more time there just for fun. But at this point, John the Baptist has come on the scene. He has preceded Jesus. That's the first half of chapter 3. And chapter 3 ends with a very significant moment in the life and pre-ministry of Jesus Christ. Verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time. For in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
And then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Father, as we open this page and look at the baptism of Jesus, we pray, Father, that you will open our ears to what the Spirit is saying to the church this morning. Father, this is one of the hard things for us because we like to feel safe and we like to feel secure in what we have been taught. I come from that same place, Lord, and so even in studying this, I pray that you would break us from tradition of the past and help us to stand on the truth of now and to move forward trusting that you knew what you meant and you meant what you said, Lord. We ask, Lord Jesus, that your Spirit would speak to us today and teach us. And guide us through this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, seven years ago, last Thursday, the towers fell. The planes crashed. The Pentagon burned. Even that field in Somerset County outside of Pennsylvania saw an airplane go down. And all total, 2,975 lives were lost in that one fateful morning. Another 24 people remain missing. Do you remember where you were? I mean, you've probably already heard that. I know the newscasters were saying that on Thursday. Do you remember where you were when it happened? And, and it amazes me how far our country has come in seven years. Not necessarily in a good direction, but how far we've moved. From a place after those first few days of, of intense unity to a place today of, of some pretty severe and frightening division. I was watching the news and they said that this is the last year a memorial is going to be held in the vast crater of Ground Zero in New York City. Because as of next year, building will be going on there. They're, they're beginning the project, long overdue, of setting up a, a memorial there. And they hope to have it finished by the 10th anniversary of 9-11. It's described as a museum that will have two large reflecting pools where the Twin Towers once stood. Waterfalls are supposed to cascade down into a lower underground viewing area that lists all of the victims' names for people to come and pay respects. The Pentagon Memorial is already finished, and you may have seen it opened up on Thursday. It's a park filled with paper bark maple trees throughout, and 184 uniquely crafted benches, each one bearing the name of all the people who lost their lives both in the plane and in the Pentagon when the plane crashed into it. 184 people. I didn't realize this, didn't even think about it, but it was people from the ages of 3 to 71 who died there at the Pentagon. But underneath the benches, it's a, it's a beautiful construction. The, the benches are made of polished aluminum underneath. And then there are pools of water beneath each one. And the newscaster stated they didn't want anything to remind people of the terror. So no fire, no flames of any kind. Just tranquil, tranquil, peaceful pools of water above which people could sit and reflect. Well, there's another memorial involving pools of water which Jesus himself instituted in its baptism. Before he even entered into his public ministry, Jesus came down to the waters of the Jordan and was baptized by John. In an act that we know even surprised John, caught him off guard. It's similar to the 9-11 memorials in that it deals with the death of a man. 
But it far surpasses any of the memorials that, that mankind has planted here on planet Earth because it deals with the most terrible and tragic event of all human history, the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is about. Now some might say, how can you compare the death of one man with the tragic deaths of almost 3,000 people, including children? How can you say that the crucifixion burial of Christ was more tragic or a more terrible event in history than what we saw on 9-11? Or, or have you visited the Vietnam Wall? What about the tragedy there? Or how about Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum there in Jerusalem? Have you seen that? Well, as a matter of fact, I've seen both. And neither one of them compare to the memorial that calls us to the death of Jesus. I dare to refer to the death of Jesus as by far the most tragic and wonderful because through his death, though one man died, all mankind has the opportunity of salvation. You know what the real tragedy of 9-11 is? It was a complete waste. At least it feels like it today. That those deaths were died... And after it all happened, again, for a while, some good came of it. There was, there was a sense of patriotism and, and drawing a country together. But even that has fallen away. It was a senseless massacre by senseless people. There's nothing senseless about the death and burial of Jesus Christ. Planned before the foundations of the world. Significant in its far-reaching aspects. Where one man died once for all men, all women, all people of all time. Peter was there. And in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, he wrote, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, Peter writes, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Peter compares Christ's death and our baptism to the salvation offered to all people at the time of the flood. Do you realize that all people were offered salvation, by the way, at the time of the flood? It was not just offered to Noah. We're told in the Bible that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. We're told the entire time during the construction of the ark, Noah was preaching about an end that was imminent and calling people to repentance and calling people to turn to God and be saved from the flood that was coming. You can go all the way back to the generation, seventh generation from Adam, three generations before Noah, to a man named Enoch. Enoch, the Bible tells us in the book of Jude, was a prophet who prophesied about these things and told of the coming flood. Well, how do we know that? He named his son Methuselah. And Methuselah's name means, in his death it shall come. Or dying he shall send. And so even Enoch named his son a prophetic name that said something's coming. And after the death of Methuselah, it's going to hit. Guess what? When Methuselah died, probably within about a year, the flood came. The Lord, even then, was calling all people to repentance. The Lord was still looking for salvation. It was not His intention just to wipe man out without hope. And so several generations before it happened, 
the Lord was calling people back to him but of the whole entire earth at that time eight people listened well there weren't that many people on the earth at that time anyway were there Rick? well think about it in the days of Noah before the flood people were living upwards of 900 years thinking scientists can accept that not just as theory but the belief that there was a water canopy and there is evidence of that on earth today that there was a water canopy that spread itself around the entire earth and protected against the harmful rays of the sun well when the flood happened guess what the Bible says the waters not only came from above they came from beneath they came from all directions it's as though God burst that water canopy and after the flood the harmful rays of the sun which by the way are so powerful they go straight through the earth so even at night they're still penetrating our bodies those harmful rays began to radically move forward the death of man to where God said it'll be about 120 years and after the flood that was about the case but I want you to think about something if a man living back then who had 900 years to live had four kids and just lived long enough to see his kids have four kids of their own in just five generations their clan will reach 96 people that is one big honking family reunion in just 10 generations that family then jumps to 3,079 people in 20 generations the number reaches 3,120,000 people in 30 generations it soars to 3,220,000,000 people and in Genesis chapter 5 we have the equivalent of a minimum of 40 generations that being the case if you could have 30 generations from one man having four kids who have four kids of their own if in 30 generations that reaches 3 billion people how many would it reach in 40 generations? the sum total of the number of people alive on planet earth at the time of the flood was most likely greater than it is today that's how many lives were lost I mean that is a frightening and significant number why were those lives lost? because they would not do it God's way because they would not repent and turn back to the Father so as to be saved because they were a rebellious and wicked people gang there is something so incredibly important about baptism as relates to our salvation that the enemy has sought to confuse it in the minds of man and in the church we have debate we have dissension disagreement about something that the Bible tells us is very simple it's quite simplistic in fact I, I just heard this after first hour they didn't get this you guys get to hear this Pastor Yoon is a, a Chinese pastor in the Chinese underground church he's written a book and he tells about the, the time when they first started receiving Bibles there in China and what a great thing that was he got one and, and then they began to receive others as churches smuggled them in and they could pass around to their growing fellowship of believers and he said everything was wonderful and the church was unified until churches started sending their doctrinal statements along with the Bibles and you know what the first issue to divide the church in China was baptism because one church said it meant this and another church said it meant this and another church said it meant this and pretty soon they had division where once there was none hand a man the Bible and the truth is obvious cloud it with man's interpretations and thoughts and perspectives and it starts to get muddy and mucky and we got to slog our way through to the truth which is what I invite you to do with me this morning as we go a slogging now my purpose is not to be dogmatic about baptism but simply to speak in terms of biblical truth in other words we report you decide so 
so I invite you to set aside traditional uh, denominational assumptions and let the word of God speak. At the end of Matthew's gospel, before Jesus returned to heaven, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Not only did Jesus see fit to command baptism, but he carries it out himself, as we see happening before us in Matthew chapter 3, even to the surprise of John the Baptist, who in verse 14 says, I have need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? Let me give you five specific things that I, I believe we see in Jesus' baptism. Five things for your consideration. There are probably dozens of more we can talk about, but for this morning we'll just look at five. Number one, Jesus' baptism reveals to us a particular immersion. A particular immersion. The word baptize, gang, is sufficient in and of itself to describe exactly what this act should look like. And yet in the church today we have everything from sprinkling to pouring to completely dunking people, as you may have seen us do out here at the pond. Why all the differences? Why the confusion? Gang, it comes back to tradition. People heading off in a different direction saying, well, let's do it this way, or let's try doing it this way, or maybe we can do it this way. And you may feel the need to debate and stand for whatever method you're used to or you were raised with. I understand that. But let me ask you again to allow the simplicity of the Word of God to speak first and then debate after. We read this verse on Wednesday night, Psalm 119, 130. It says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple, which in my case is good news. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Let me read this to you. Paul makes a, a comment here about this. Ephesians 4 is a great chapter in the Bible, one that everyone should read through and be familiar with, because in it, Paul is talking about unity. It's talking about the church functioning as it's supposed to function. That we're all together. Under the head, who is Jesus, we're like a body. And we're growing and we're maturing together. And Paul says in verse 4 of Ephesians 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Which means what Paul is saying is, hey, we all have a similarity. We all have a unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. But we also have some distinction. God gifts us differently. So that as a body, we can function and mature together and minister to each other and love each other. But he says, one baptism. Okay, Paul, what does that mean? Again, let the word speak louder than your tradition. Baptism is not a word that was unfamiliar to the Jewish people. In fact, we have evidence archaeologically that it was going on a long time before Christianity ever came on the scene. Before Jesus ever took baptism and expressed it in the way it's supposed to be. He, he gave it the enlightenment. He showed us what it's to mean even beyond what it meant to the Jews. I shared this before, the down at Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. There was a whole community living there called the Essenes. And the Essenes, you can see this yourself, they had baptismal pools where people would go and they had steps going down into it and then steps leading up out of it and these pools would be about 10 feet deep. Not probably at the bottom, they drowned themselves. But it was deep enough that they walked down into the water, they completely immersed themselves and they came out. How often did the Essenes do this? Probably at least four to five times every single day. They would do it when they got up in the morning. 
They would do it before breakfast. They would go in and baptize themselves, completely immersing themselves before they started studying Torah law or the scrolls. They would do it again before lunch. They would do it again in the afternoon before they began to copy the scrolls, which was a big part of why that community was there. At dinner time, down they go. At bedtime, down they go. I just counted five or six right there, and that doesn't count. If you mess yourself up walking over to get the scrolls, you're tripping the mud back to the baptistry. They were doing it all the time. Now understand something here. The Greek word chosen by God. And I've shared before, I believe every word was God-breathed. And he chose what went into Scripture. In the Old Testament, he chose that it would be in the Hebrew. And a little bit of Chaldee, a little bit. He chose that the New Testament would be primarily Greek with some Aramaic. And so this word for baptism is baptizo, which means to immerse or submerge. There is no other meaning for it. I'm just telling you what the word means. I know this pokes against some people's tradition. I understand that. There is another Greek word, which is the word rantizo, which means to sprinkle. And rantizo is not used a single time with reference to baptism in the scripture. The word is always baptizo. So again, just looking at what the word says, it means to submerge or to be completely immersed. John baptized in the Jordan River. We know that people went down into the water and were submerged by John, as was Jewish tradition, in the act of ceremonial cleansing and repentance before the coming of Jesus. Jesus himself went down into the water with John to be submerged in his own act of baptism. In fact, when you look at it in verse 13, actually go down in verse 14, uh, 16, sorry, verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. He's coming up and out. Well, Rick, maybe he went down into the water waist deep and they took some and sprinkled it on his head at that point. First of all, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense why we'd actually go down into the river. Why not just bring a little bucket to the side? But secondly, we know that that is not how it was done. It was done by immersion. Jewish ceremonial bathing, cleansing. And so that's what was going on there. Interesting that the first time sprinkling replaced immersion was 220 years after Jesus' resurrection. In 253 A.D. It wasn't until the word baptized was transliterated and anglicized at the time of the writing of the King James Version that suddenly this word baptism no longer meant to immerse. But it meant now whatever your particular tradition means is back. The story goes, and I can't absolutely verify this, but I've been told that at the writing of the King James that was a big problem that they had. Coming to this word, and they're translating in the Greek, and they're looking and saying, wait a minute, this word baptizo is used here, it means immerse. That's not what we're doing in the Catholic Church of the day. That was not the primary way that they, quote unquote, baptized. They sprinkled. And so they said, well, what do we do with this word? What do you ever do with a word like that when you're translating scripture? You just transliterate it. We'll just say baptizo is now baptism, and then we can tell people that's what the word means. And so a mass deception comes right out of that. When I don't believe God meant it to be deceiving at all. He chose the word because the word simply means get immersed. Get dunked. Submerge yourself in the water. Now for those of you who were sprinkled rather than immersed, listen to me very clearly. I do not question your faith. I don't question your belief in God. I don't question the legitimacy. I would even say of your salvation because the Bible tells us it's by faith we are saved through grace and this is not of yourselves. That there's not a single act that you or I can perform to elicit or gain our salvation other than accepting and believing what Jesus did at Calvary. However, when it comes to the issue of baptism, I don't question your faith 
I don't question your belief. I also don't question those parents who would want to dedicate their children to the Lord. That's all well and good. Unfortunately, when people approach baptism, especially adults who have been sprinkled as infants, later in life they, they hear about this and they start saying, oh, wait a minute, that's going to deny my faith. No, no, no. Why? Why would that deny your faith? Why would that deny your parents' desire for you to know the Lord? To do something again. I've been baptized three times in my life. The first time I was ten years old. And I believed that to, to be baptized meant that I was adult enough to take communion. So I was in. That's cool. Then I get the snack too if I do this. And I loved Jesus. I really did. And when I look back now as an adult, I could see that as a ten-year-old, I was acting out of the faith that I had as a ten-year-old kid. I loved the Lord, and so it was the right thing to do. But by the time I was 16, just six years, I'm looking back and I'm going, I had completely the wrong motivation there. And so I got baptized again. And the second time was a time where I chose it and I said, God, this is what I want to do for you and I want to live for you and, and that's the deal. Third time was a year and a half ago in the Jordan River where Spencer Headley baptized me. All of them, you know, are unique and special. Not one of them purchased my salvation, but every single one of them were an expression of the faith that I had in Jesus. And I'll tell you what, I would do it again if I thought it would please the Lord. And I think that's one thing that I want you to hear and understand. Let me ask you this. Is there value in being baptized as your Lord was? Immersed. Is there value in making the decision for yourself rather than having your parents make that decision? And I know those who are sprinkled will immediately come back and say, Yeah, but I was confirmed at a certain age and I made the decision then. Great. The biblical example is make the decision and then get baptized. As an expression of the faith decision you have made. This particular immersion represents getting something far more significant than who's right or wrong in a debate. It represents burial. Ever been to a burial where they sprinkled some dirt on the head of a corpse and left him? I mean, that's a little ridiculous. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 38 to James and John, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He had already been baptized by John, so he wasn't referring to that. He was referring to his burial. He was referring to his death. James, John, are you willing to die the way I died? You know what's funny? I think among us, there are many here who would say, I would love to die for Jesus. Maybe it's not you. (laughs) But there are those who would say, I I would love to go to the ends of the earth for him. Lord, I will do whatever you want me to do for you. I want to do it for you, Lord. And someone says, well, great, why don't you go get immersed? Well, I was sprinkled as an infant. I would need to do it that way. I I, I have trouble computing that. Jesus was talking about his death and burial, which baptism by immersion indicates. How so? Well, let me let Paul tell you. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Paul describes it explicitly. That you're buried like Christ was buried. Pouring and sprinkling does not bury like Christ was buried. But the word immersion, which is the word baptizo, expresses that in, I think, an incredibly powerful way. Listen, more than loyalty or to, to family or, or tradition, more than personal belief or assumption, Paul's explanation of baptism is a stunning portrait for anyone willing to be buried with Christ and connected in that portrait to his death. 
Well, Rick, isn't it just water? Sure, unless you attach faith to it, and then it's a totally different thing. And that's what we're invited to. So number one, baptism is, what did I call it? (laughs) A particular immersion. Number two, there is a priestly implication. Look at verse 14 again. John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. A priestly implication for in Jesus' baptism, now we're shifting our focus back onto Jesus himself. Part of the reason for his being baptized was preparation for his high priestly ministry, which he was about to begin. This was the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. The first thing out. The first thing he did. And it was similar to what happened to the high priest. I'll just read this to you. Leviticus chapter 8. Unless you want to flip back there. But Leviticus chapter 8 and verse 1 tells us the following. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bowl of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So Moses did, just as the Lord commanded him. When the congregation was assembled at the doorway of the tent of meeting, Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded to do. Then, verse 6, Moses had Aaron and his sons come near and washed them with water. Now the whole congregation of Israel, Moses washed Aaron and his two sons with water. That could be a little weird. I mean, that could be a little uncomfortable. Especially if you're in the front row. I could just see people kind of shuffling and going. (laughs) The word washed here in the Hebrew is rachatz. Rachatz literally means to bathe. He gave them a bath. From head to toe, Aaron and his two sons, as required by the Lord. Why? It was part of the priestly consecration and preparation for the office. So that the people would understand, man, if you're going to come and serve the Lord, you've got to do so clean. You've got to clean yourself before, and the priest would be used to this. The ceremonial cleansings were a big part of their priestly duty. It was symbolic of the need to appear before the Lord as pure. Isaiah 1.16 The prophet writes, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now, let's reason together, says the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Baptism signifies this kind of ceremonial washing for the high priest Jesus. And you know what? You're a priest if you're in Jesus Christ. A royal priesthood, Peter says. And so this cleansing is appropriate at the outset of a Christian experience as well. That you, like Jesus, come to be washed. Psalm 51, David said, after his great sin with Bathsheba, he said, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Parents of preteens. You know the outcome when you send them off to the shower and they hop in and out so fast their hair is barely damp. No shampoo, no soap, no body washing and they plop down on the couch beside you after the fact. (laughs) Did you take a shower? Oh yeah, yeah, I took a shower. See, the hair is wet. Got the shower. Taking care of it. (laughs) Did you use soap? Um... (laughs) 
Did you use shampoo? And my, my son Hayden especially, he's telling me, how do you know? How do you know? It doesn't take a lot, son. One sniff of the head and we know. Go back down there and get clean. I can tell you as a parent of kids all over 11, full body washing is required. It is necessary. And the Lord says, look, when you come to me to serve in my kingdom, you've got to get clean. So why in the world, Rick, are you guys baptizing that pond? <laughs> because again, it is symbolic of the cleansing that we have by the blood of Jesus. It's not the water that does it. And I think that's where we kind of get off a little bit. People say, well, then if it's not the water that does it, why not sprinkle? Well, okay, whatever. But it's still not what he said. I mean, you can do it that way, but it's still not what he said. You can choose to do things in all manner of different ways. But what did he say? What did he say? Jesus didn't need cleansing from sin. He didn't need a washing of repentance, but he did take that washing, signifying his entrance as our great high priest. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, rantizo, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed and there is the word luo with pure water how do you approach your high priest have you been washed Jesus' baptism shows us a particular immersion a priestly implication and number three a powerful illustration verse 16 after being baptized Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold the heavens were opened he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him and behold a voice out of the heavens said this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and in Jesus' baptism for the first time in Matthew's gospel all three aspects of God are present in the same place at the same time it's a picture of the trinity not just a picture of the trinity it is the trinity all there at Jesus' baptism. In this poignant moment, this triune God is expressed in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God the Son acts in obedience to the Father. God the Spirit rests on the Son. And God the Father speaks, which no wonder God told us that we're to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus did it. All three were present at His baptism. And I surmise that the Lord would say to you and to me, I want to be completely present in your life. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I don't want any aspect of who I am to be lost to you. I want to walk with you as your Father. I want to stand beside you as your brother in Christ who even accepted that title in Hebrews chapter 2, blowing our minds again. And I want to guide you in my spirit. All three aspects. Now, I don't have time this morning to get into all the particular aspects of the Trinity, but suffice it again to say that all three expressions of God were present at the baptism of Jesus, and He wants the same for you. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13:14, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, I'll just tell you something real quick. Side note about the Trinity. Yes, it blows my mind. When I think about the Trinity... 
I can hardly get my mind around it, wrap it around that concept. It is so huge, it's so amazing. And if you feel that way, let me just remind you that He's God and you shouldn't be able to figure Him out. And you will never fully figure Him out. Part of what I'm looking forward to in eternity is what I call the exploration of eternity. Which is not going to be tracking the heavens and checking out the angels lodging. It's going to be learning of the Father. Through the Son, by the Spirit, being present and just every time we think we understand something about God, something else is going to become made known to us and we're just going to go, wow, praise the Lord. And we're going to worship more. And then we're going to think, we're just really getting to know you, Lord. And then we go, wow, and there's going to be something else. Because He is so great and so vast and so glorious and so far beyond anything you or or I can comprehend. Now, with all that in mind, here's where we really get down to it. I've got two more things to tell you. Number four in the list here. In Jesus' baptism, we note a personal identification. Watch this. Verse 15 again. Jesus said, Permitted at this time. In this way, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? A lot of people step out there and they say, well, Jesus got baptized as an example. Of course, he didn't need it himself. So he went down into the water so that later he could say, hey, I want you guys to do that. Remember what I did back there? So you guys do it too. Okay, it's an example. And that's a superficial approach to understanding Jesus' baptism. Ironside said this. He said, it's a shallow interpretation indeed that makes the act of baptism simply the fulfilling of righteousness. In other words, it was not in order that he might set us a good example that Jesus was baptized, but rather that he might identify himself with sinners as the one who would make himself responsible to satisfy every righteous claim for those who owned that they were justly under the curse of the violated law and so without any righteousness of their own. After about the fourth time I read that, I understood what he meant. Let me explain it to you in simple terms. It means that Jesus didn't get baptized so that we would identify with Him. He got baptized to identify Himself with us. He aligned Himself with sinful man. He went through that that act of baptism to say, I am bonding myself to you in this significant way. I am doing this to fulfill all the righteous requirements of God in myself for anyone who comes to me in faith. Look at it this way. We are people with a huge debt. We cannot repay the debt that we owe. It's a massive debt. doesn't matter how good we are, how long we live, how much we do. We never will be able to repay that debt. And so Jesus in his baptism comes along and he signs the debt and says, I guarantee full payment. And at the cross, Jesus made that payment. So three years earlier, the baptism guaranteeing the payment at the cross, he settles the debt in full. Peter again said in 1 Peter 2.21, You've been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed and when you're baptized when I was baptized it's the most powerful symbol of dying to your sin and being made alive in his righteousness and this is the thing you've got to get more than anything else we talked about this morning number five this baptism is a provocative invitation a provocative invitation what's provocative about baptism 
I mean, come on. You do it, you get a certificate, right? You do it, maybe afterwards you gather the family for a luncheon, right? Didn't she look cute in the little baptismal dress? Gang, that makes this thing superficial. It was never designed to be about a certificate. It was never designed, by the way, to be about membership into a denominational body. And there are a lot of churches that would be angry with me for saying that. Just having a conversation with, with our friends Jim and Helen Passmore, who are visiting here from California, and those of you who went to Israel you may remember the Passmores. We were talking last night about this very thing, about the issue, and, and, and Helen was sharing with me how when she was talking to a pastor of a church that I served at in California, how he was saying, well, you, you really need to be baptized by immersion to be a member of our church. If I had known that at the time I was working in that church, I would have resigned. Well, okay, I wouldn't have immediately because I needed the, the income, but I would have been upset. <laughs> it would have bothered me because you are not baptized into a church. You are baptized into the body of Christ Jesus. When you declare faith in Jesus, He puts you in the body. Whether you meet at the bridge or you meet at Christ the King or you meet at the Baptist church, it, it, it's inconsequential. Are you part of the body of Christ? Your baptism is into his body, into his death, into his suffering, not into Joe Schmo's church. It's not a religious right, gang. And here's the problem, and I know that this is a pun, I really didn't mean it this way, but with baptism we've watered it down. That's the problem that we have in the church. We have diluted the meaning of baptism so much that what should be one of the most provocative and challenging moments of our lives becomes something a parent chooses for a child and they work it out later for the child to choose that in confirmation. It becomes something an adult does to join a church. Listen, Chuck Smith, I'm going to quote him here. I love this quote. He said, Baptism declares the superiority of the spiritual over the material. That's provocative. Baptism declares the life of the spirit over the life of the flesh. Baptism, gang, represents the death of the natural life. And that's why it's provocative. Baptism represents the birth of the spiritual life. Again, it's provocative. Even the very water itself is a picture of the living water of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't want to just sprinkle some spirit on you. He wants to drench you, to soak you, to immerse you in His presence. Which we prayed about this morning. And the Bible says that He hems us in behind and before. The Bible says He dwells within the heart of the believer. What does that mean? It means I'm covered. He's all over me. He wants that kind of intimacy and involvement in my life. And as I come up out of the water, immersed, drenched, soaked to the skin, that living water of the Holy Spirit is portrayed as a powerful symbol. But here's what's really provocative about the invitation to get immersed. It takes the death of the natural man and the natural man dies hard. It means we set ego aside. It means we set tradition aside. It means we set the security of previous church involvement aside and we say, you know what? It means immersed. Jesus was immersed. He asked me to do it. I'm in. And that's the death of the natural man. I want to give you men some statistics. Robert M. Lewis, pastor of a church in Little Rock, Arkansas, he wrote a thing called, or did a thing called Men's Fraternity Workshop. Approximately 26 million men attend church in America, which sounds great until you realize that 68 million men stay home. Of that number of 60 million who stay home, 
85% used to attend or belong to a church body. I read that and I just went, what? What is going on? Since 1992, men's church attendance has been steadily declining instead of increasing in spite of the increase of numerous individual men's resources like promise keepers and men's Bible studies and men's books and how to be a godly man. I mean, in the decade of the 90s, there was an explosion of men's resources and guess what? Men stopped going to church. What is the deal? What's the problem? I'll tell you what the problem is. The natural man dies hard. Guys, let's be honest. It is difficult for us to set aside our ego and walk like Jesus walked. But we've got to die if we're going to live. We've got to be willing to shed the flesh. Some of you have read this book. I know I've shared this. C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader in the Chronicles of Narnia. Great book. There's a scene in it where this kid called Eustace, who's a jerk and nobody likes, somehow becomes a dragon. I won't tell you how. Read the book. It's very cool. But he becomes a dragon. And so Aslan, the lion character, who's the Christ figure in the series, comes up to him and says, Do you want to be free from this? He says, Yeah, I really do. Are you sure you want to be free from this? Yeah, I really do. Okay, well then we just got to take your skin off. So Eustace starts to pull and realizes he can peel off a little piece of skin. So he peels off and, and like a whole dragon suit, peels it off. He's like, yes, and he looks in the water, still a dragon. And he does it again, still a dragon. And the whole time Aslan's just watching and finally says, do you really want to be free of this? He says, yeah, I do. Well, it's going to be painful. And he so wanted to be free of this dragon suit that he said, all right, whatever you have to do. Aslan takes his big lion claws and just goes, and the book describes ripping massive chunks of flesh off while Eustace is in incredible pain and chunks of dragon flesh is falling all around until finally he's standing there pure and clean and human again and what a powerful picture of exactly what has to happen to us we have got to get rid of this stuff called the flesh we got to stop living by our rules and start saying whatever God's rule is, no matter how simple it is, whatever He clearly states is truth, that's what I'm doing. And I don't care if it disagrees with the way I was raised. And I don't care if it disagrees with certain tradition. I don't care if it upsets people in my family. I'm following Jesus first. By the way, where family is concerned, you're not going to bring family along to the truth by, by dancing around issues. You'll bring them to the truth by living by the truth yourself. Even if it's hard. One of the reasons there is so much debate about baptism is that it's not easy to die. And baptism is a personal declaration of self-sacrifice in it and by it I declare death to my flesh. But here's the good news. When you die to yourself, you delight your father. Remember what God said? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At the moment of Jesus' baptism, and I don't think I'm overstating this, God was giddy. He was so excited about the obedience of His Son Jesus and what Jesus was stepping into that the heavens part and God could not silence Himself. He said, This is my Son. That's my boy Jesus. Check Him out. I'm so pleased with Him. I'm proud of my boy. How many of you this morning need to hear a father say that? How many of you need to know that you have a father who is pleased with you? Among us, I know there are many of you who have no relationship with your father. Maybe never even knew a father. 
Those who, whose relationship has, has been marred by abuse or disdain. Do you want to have a father who's pleased with you? Jesus comes up out of the water and God said, That's my boy. And I am so pleased. I'm so pleased. Jesus said in John 8.29, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. So really, when it all comes down to this, baptism is not even about you as much as it is about pleasing God. About bringing joy to your daddy. Revelation 4.11, the elders are gathered around the throne in this picture of heaven. And the Bible says they start singing out, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things. And listen, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. We were not created for our pleasure. That's a byproduct. You know, we're blessed if we get any pleasure whatsoever. We were not created for that purpose. People say, oh, oh, God created mankind because he was lonely. No, no. God created us because his love overflowed and he created us for pleasure, for joy, which he wants to put back on us. You were created for his good pleasure. You were given life so that daddy could be pleased with you, but fight it, rebel against it, and you will live a life of frustration. Accept the truth. And you will live a life awash in the pleasure of God. So Jesus' baptism, let's just be clear, was a particular immersion with priestly implications. It gave us a powerful in, uh, illustration of the Trinity, our triune God. But the depth and meaning of this act is best understood in Jesus' personal identification with sinners like us. All leading to this provocative invitation, come die so that you can really live. Let's bow and pray together. Holy Father, the decision to come to you in faith is a decision to die to ourselves. We know that. We know, Lord, that the one thing that holds us back from any step forward in our walk of faith is our flesh. It's our doubts and our weakness. Father... I just pray that you will continue to dig your claws into us and tear the flesh away and make us clean. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, it it doesn't actually begin with baptism. It begins with faith. Would you pray this prayer in your heart after me to the Lord? Father, I'm a sinner and I want to be clean. So I give you my life, Lord Jesus, to do with as you please. I believe that in your death and burial that that you took all that was supposed to be for me and you killed it and buried it. And I believe in your resurrection, Jesus, that you're coming again. And so I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior and guide me throughout my life. And make me like you in Jesus' name. Amen.